Hello there, and welcome to Down to Sleep. This is the podcast of softly spoken stories to help you get a good night's rest. Tonight, we continue with The Great Gatsby. I hope that this podcast finds you well and having a great start to the week. If not, I hope it gets better. Before we get down to sleep tonight, I would just like to let you know that if you would like to support this podcast and by doing so, join our sleepy and secret little book club over on Patreon, when you do that, you get bonus episodes every single week. So when we like a book here, we continue reading it over on Patreon until we finish the whole thing. We've been continuing The Great Gatsby, we've finished Alice in Wonderland, The Wizard of Oz, we're continuing The Picture of Dorian Gray, so come and join us where you can support the podcast and get a bonus episode every week, and these episodes are twice as long. Alright, that being said, let's take a nice deep breath, get ourselves nice and comfortable, and we'll begin. The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald Roaring Noon In a well-fanned 42nd Street cellar, I met Gatsby for lunch. Blinking away the brightness of the street outside, my eyes picked him out obscurely in the anteroom, talking to another man. Mr. Carraway, this is my friend Mr. Wolfsheim. The small flat-nosed man raised his large head and regarded me with two fine growths of hair, which luxuriated in either nostril. After a moment I discovered his tiny eyes in the half-darkness. So I took one look at him, said Mr. Wolfsheim, shaking my hand earnestly. And what do you think I did? What? I inquired politely. Evidently he was not addressing me, for he dropped my hand and covered Gatsby with his expressive nose. I handed the money to Katzper and I said, All right, Katzper, don't pay him a penny till he shuts his mouth. He shut it then and there. Gatsby took an arm of each of us and moved forward into the restaurant. Whereupon Mr. Wolfsheim swallowed a new sentence that he was starting and lapsed into a somnambulatory abstraction. Highballs asked the head waiter. This is a nice restaurant here, said Mr. Wolfsheim, looking at the Presbyterian nymphs on the ceiling. But I like across the street better. Yes, highballs, agreed Gatsby. And then to Mr. Wolfsheim, it's too hot over there. Hot and small, yes, said Mr. Wolfsheim, but full of memories. What place is that, I asked. The old metropole brooded Mr. Wolfsheim gloomily. Filled with faces dead and gone. Filled with friends gone now forever. I can't forget so long as I live the night that they shot Rosie Rosenthal there. It was six of us at the table. Rosie had eaten drunk a lot all evening. When it was almost morning, the waiter came up to him with a funny look and said, Somebody wants to speak to him outside. All right, says Rosie. Begins to get up. I pulled him down in his chair. Let the bastards come in here if they want you, Rosie, but don't you so help me move outside this room. It was four o'clock in the morning then, and if we'd raised the blinds, we'd have seen daylight. Did he go? I asked innocently. Sure he went. He turned around in the door and says, Don't let that waiter take away my coffee. Then he went out on the sidewalk, and they shot him three times in his full belly and drove away. Four of them were electrocuted, I said, remembering. Five with Becca. His nostrils turned to me in an interested way. I understand you're looking for a business connection. The juxtaposition of these two remarks was startling. Gatsby answered for me. Oh no, he exclaimed, this isn't the man. No? 
Mr. Wolfsheim seemed disappointed. This is just a friend I told you would talk about that one some other time. Oh, I beg your pardon, said Mr. Wolfsheim. I had a wrong man. A succulent hash arrived, and Mr. Wolfsheim, forgetting the more sentimental atmosphere of the old metropole, began to eat with ferocious delicacy. His eyes roved slowly all around the room. He completed the arc by turning to inspect the people directly behind. I think that except for my presence he would have taken one short glance beneath our own table. Look here, old sport, said Gatsby, leaning towards me. I'm afraid I made you a little angry this morning in the car. There was the smile again, but this time I held out against it. I don't like mysteries, I answered, and I don't understand why you won't come out frankly and tell me what you want. Why has it all got to come through Miss Baker? Oh, it's nothing underhand, he assured me. Miss Baker's a great sportswoman, you know, and she'd never do anything that wasn't all right. Suddenly he looked at his watch, jumped up, and hurried from the room, leaving me with Mr. Wolfsheim at the table. He has to telephone, said Mr. Wolfsheim, following him with his eyes. Fine fellow, isn't he? Handsome to look at and a perfect gentleman. Yeah. He's an Oxford man. Oh. He went to Oxford College in England. You know Oxford College? I've heard of it. It's one of the most famous colleges in the world. Have you known Gatsby for a long time? I inquired. Several years, he answered in a gratified way. I made the pleasure of his acquaintance just after the war. But I knew I had discovered a man of fine breeding after I talked with him an hour. I said to myself, that's the kind of man you'd like to take home and introduce to your mother and sister. He paused. I see you're looking at my cuff buttons. I hadn't been looking at them, but I did now. They were composed of oddly familiar pieces of ivory. Finest specimens of human molars, he informed me. Well, I inspected them. That's a very interesting idea. Yeah, he flipped his sleeves up under his coat. Yeah, Gatsby's very careful about women. He would never so much as look at a friend's wife. When the subject of this instinctive trust returned to the table and sat down, Mr. Wolfsheim drank his coffee with a jerk and got to his feet. I've enjoyed my lunch, he said. I'm going to run off from you two young men before I outstay my welcome. Oh, don't hurry, Maya, said Gatsby without enthusiasm. Mr. Wolfsheim raised his hand in a sort of benediction. You're very polite, but I belong to another generation, he announced solemnly. You sit here and discuss your sports, your young ladies, and your... He supplied an imaginary noun with another wave of his hand. As for me, I'm fifty years old, and I won't impose myself on you any longer. As he shook hands and turned away, his tragic nose was trembling. I wondered if I had said anything to offend him. He becomes very sentimental sometimes, explained Gatsby. This is one of his sentimental days. He's quite a character around New York. A denizen of Broadway. Who is he? An actor? No. A dentist? Maya Wolfsheim? No. He's a gambler. Gatsby hesitated and then added coolly. He's the man who fixed the World Series back in 1919. Fixed the World Series, I repeated. The idea staggered me. I remembered, of course, that the World Series had been fixed in 1919, but if I had thought of it at all, I would have thought of it as a thing that merely happened. The end of some inevitable chain. It never occurred to me that 
one man could start to play with the faith of fifty million people, with the single-mindedness of a burglar blowing a safe. How did he happen to do that? I asked after a minute. He just saw the opportunity. Why isn't he in jail? They can't get him, old sport. He's a smart man. I insisted on paying the check. As the waiter brought my change, I caught sight of Tom Buchanan across the crowded room. Come along with me for a minute, I said. I gotta say hello to someone. When he saw us, Tom jumped up and took a half dozen steps in our direction. Where have you been? he demanded eagerly. Daisy's furious because you haven't called up. This is Mr. Gatsby, Mr. Buchanan. They shook hands briefly, and a strained, unfamiliar look of embarrassment came over Gatsby's face. How you been, anyhow? demanded Tom of me. How'd you happen to come up this far to eat? I've been having lunch with Mr. Gatsby. I turned towards Mr. Gatsby, but he was no longer there. One October day in 1917, said Jordan Baker that afternoon, sitting up very straight on a straight chair in the tea garden at the Plaza Hotel. I was walking along from one place to another, half on the sidewalk, half on the lawn. I was happier on the lawns because I had shoes from England with rubber knobs on the soles that bit into the soft ground. I had on a new plaid skirt, also that blew a little in the wind. And whenever this happened, the red, white, and blue banners in front of the houses stretched out stiff in a disapproving way. The largest of the banners and the largest of the lawns belonged to Daisy Fay's house. She was just 18, two years older than me, and by far the most popular of all the young girls in Louisville. She dressed in white and had a little white roadster and all day long the telephone rang in her house, and excited young officers from Camp Taylor demanded the privilege of monopolizing her that night. When I came opposite her house that morning, her white roadster was beside the curb. She was sitting in it with a lieutenant that I had never seen before. They were so engrossed in each other that she didn't see me until I was five feet away. Hello, Jordan, she called unexpectedly. Please come here. I was flattered that she wanted to speak to me, because of all the older girls I admired her most. She asked me if I was going to the Red Cross to make bandages. I was. Well, then would I tell them that she couldn't come that day? The officer looked at Daisy while she was speaking, in a way that every young girl wants to be looked at sometime. Because it seemed romantic to me, I've remembered the incident ever since. His name was Jay Gatsby. And I didn't lay eyes on him again for over four years. Even after I'd met him on Long Island, I didn't realize that it was the same man. That was 1917. By the next year, I had a few bow myself. I began to play in tournaments. I didn't see Daisy very often. She went with a slightly older crowd. When she went with anyone at all, that is. Wild rumors were circulating about her how her mother had often found her packing her bag one winter night to go to New York and say goodbye to a soldier who was going overseas. She was effectually prevented, but she wasn't on speaking terms with her family for several weeks. After that, she didn't play around with the soldiers anymore, but only with a few flat-footed, short-sighted young men in town who couldn't get into the army at all. 
By the next autumn, she was gay again, gay as ever. She had a debut after the armistice, and in February, she was presumably engaged to a man from New Orleans. In June, she married Tom Buchanan of Chicago, with more pomp and circumstance than Louisville ever knew before. He came down with a hundred people in four private cars, hired a whole floor of the Mulbach Hotel. The day before the wedding, he gave her a string of pearls, valued at $350,000. I was a bridesmaid. I came into her room half an hour before the bridal dinner. I found her lying on her bed, as lovely as the June night, in her flowered dress, as drunk as a monkey. She had a bottle in one hand and a letter in the other. Gratulate me, she muttered. Never had a drink before, but oh, how I do enjoy it. What's the matter, Daisy? I was scared, I can tell you. I'd never seen a girl like that before. Here, dearies, she groped around in a wastebasket that she had with her on the bed and pulled out a string of pearls. Take them downstairs and give them back to whoever they belong to. Tell them all Daisy changed her mind. Say, Daisy's changed her mind. She began to cry. She cried and cried. I rushed out and found her mother's maid. We locked the door and got her into a cold bath. She wouldn't let go of the letter. She took it into the tub with her and squeezed it up in a wet ball. She only let me leave with it in the soap dish when she saw that it was coming to pieces like snow. She didn't say another word. We gave her spirits of ammonia and put ice on her forehead and hooked her back into her dress. Half an hour later, when we walked out of the room, the pearls were around her neck and the incident was over. Next day, five o'clock, she married Tom Buchanan without so much as a shiver and started off on a three-month trip to the South Seas. I saw them in Santa Barbara when they came back. I thought I'd never seen a girl so mad about her husband. If he left the room for a minute, she'd look around uneasily and say, Where's Tom gone? And wear the most abstracted expression until she saw him coming in the door. She used to sit on the sand with his head in her lap by the hour, rubbing her fingers over his eyes and looking at him with unfathomable delight. It was touching to see them together. It made you laugh in a hushed, fascinated way. That was in August. A week after I left Santa Barbara, Tom ran into a wagon on the Ventura Road one night, ripped a front wheel off his car. The girl who was with him got into the papers too, because her arm was broken. She was one of the chambermaids in the Santa Barbara Hotel. The next April, Daisy had her little girl. They went to France for a year. I saw them one spring in Cannes and later in Deville, and they came back to Chicago to settle down. Daisy was popular in Chicago, as you know. They moved with a fast crowd, all of them young, rich, and wild. But she came out with an absolutely perfect reputation. Perhaps because she doesn't drink. It's a great advantage not to drink among hard-drinking people. You can hold your tongue, and moreover, you can time any little irregularity of your own so that everybody else is so blind that they don't see or care. Perhaps Daisy never went in for a more at all, and yet there's something in that voice of hers. Well, about six weeks ago, she heard the name Gatsby for the first time in years. It was when I asked you, do you remember? 
if you knew Gatsby in West Egg. After you had gone home, she came into my room, woke me up, and said, What Gatsby? And when I described him, I was half asleep. She said in the strangest voice that it must be the man that she used to know. It wasn't until then that I connected this Gatsby with the officer in her white car. And that is where we shall close the book on tonight's episode of Down to Sleep and The Great Gatsby. If you would like to hear the second half to this episode, it's available on Patreon at patreon.com slash down to sleep, where the episodes are twice as long and you get a bonus reading every single week, a whole bonus episode just for you. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. I hope that listening to this has helped you relax somewhat and that you are already asleep. But if not, there's 20 plus other episodes that you can put on and will hopefully help you drift off. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. I will see you next Monday for another episode. Until then, good night.